Hello, and welcome to the 18th of October edition of Worcester Talking News, brought to you by Worcester News and Equipment for the Blind, and with kind permission of the Worcester News. I'm Phil. The team for this week's edition comprises John as recording engineer, Carol on copying and admin, and our readers today are Catherine, myself and Pam, and I'll get them to say hello to you in a short while. I would like to extend a warm welcome to any new listeners and hope you enjoy your recording. As ever, we will include a list of useful telephone numbers, what's on locally, the headline stories, general news stories, some sport, obituaries, thought for the week, sunrise and sunset times, and the birthdays. And if we don't have a record of your birthday and you'd like to be included, please get in touch and we can add it to the birthday file. Please do keep sending us your feedback, good and bad, as the team here really wants to make the recording as pleasurable and as relevant as possible for you. If you do have any comments or problems, our telephone number is 01905 767766. Please be prepared for an answer phone to take your call. Alternatively, put a note in your wallet. Listeners are kindly reminded to return memory sticks promptly to facilitate a smooth operation and use of resources. As from now, you will only receive two weeks of recordings. If neither of these are returned, you will not receive further recordings. If you are unwell or have a problem, please ring us on 01905 767766 and leave a message. The service is free to users, but if you'd like to make a donation, it can be sent to Colin Chance House, Wilds Lane, Worcester, WR5 1DA. Now, those telephone numbers that I mentioned. Police non-emergency is 101. Crime Stoppers is 0800 one. Worcester Hub for Council Matters is 01905 765 765. Worcester Live, which has details of what's on at the Swan Theatre, Huntington Hall and Henry Sandon Hall, can be found on 01905 611 427. Malvern Theatres is 01684 892277. The Samaritans now have a free phone number, which is 116123. And once again, our Colin Chance house number is 01905 767766. I've also been asked to explain to listeners that last week's wallets arrived late, for which we apologise, as the Royal Mail didn't deliver or collect the sacks last week. Please return your wallets and your memory sticks ASAP. Right, we will now move to the headlines and the other stories, and I'll get our two other readers to introduce themselves. First, Catherine. Hello, this is Catherine. And Pam. Hello, this is Pam. And this is still me. Here we go, we're going to start with Catherine with the headlines. Uh, This is the story from Friday, October the 12th. The headline was, I'll torch the whole place. Arsonist tried to set fire to pub. An arsonist set fire to a Worcester pub, attempting to endanger the landlord's life because of a grievance against him. Sasha Bailey-Dean tried to cause a fire by stuffing paper through a letterbox after saying landlord Edward Marshall had hurt her. She admitted arson with intent to endanger the life of landlord Mr Marshall at the pub in Upper Tithing, Worcester. The 37-year-old of Summers Road, Barbourne, Worcester, pleaded guilty at Worcester Crown Court. The arson attack happened on September the 10th. 
A series of texts Bailey Dean had sent to Mr Marshall were read out by the prosecutor, Giles Nelson. In one text, she wrote, I will torch the whole place and won't care if you're in it. You hurt me, I hurt you. Mr Marshall texted, I've had enough, Sasha, no more texts. Bailey Dean texted Mr Marshall that she'd set fire to the pub and wrote, I'll do it again and show this to the police, I'm past caring. Mr Nelson said Bailey Dean had admitted an extremely serious charge and after after being granted bail had had further threatening contact towards the person in the case. Gary Harper, defending, applied for a psychiatric report to be prepared before Bailey Dean is sentenced, telling the judge she had borderline personality disorder and had previously been admitted to hospital as an inpatient. He said she had a history of suicidal thoughts and self-harm and was under the care of a mental health team at Studdard Kennedy House in Worcester, which saw her once a week. He said the only reason she had contacted Mr Marshall after the arson, breaching her bail conditions, was because he had contacted her and she was responding to his text message. The defendant is in the second week of a degree course at the University of Birmingham. Judge Nicholas Cartwright said in her mind she had a grievance against him. He added, Sasha Bailey Dean has admitted arson with intent to endanger life. The life in question is that of Edward Marshall, who is the landlord of the Cap and Gown pub. The real risk is to Edward Marshall and not to the general public. Judge Cartwright said he would bail Sasha Bailey Dean to an address in High Street, Broadway, once the police had confirmed the address was acceptable to the person living there, understood to be a friend of the defendant. The judge also placed her on an electronically monitored daily curfew between 7pm and 6am as part of her bail. Bailey Dean must not travel west of the M5 or further north unless it be to attend court hearings or her solicitor's office by prior appointment. Further conditions stipulate she must not contact Edward Marshall directly or indirectly by any means whatsoever and must cooperate with the probation service and psychiatrists in the preparation of reports before she is sentenced. The sentencing hearing <coughs> excuse me, is scheduled to take place on Friday, November the 23rd. Mr. Mr Marshall, speaking after the hearing, said he did not wish to com- comment at this stage of the case. Delight as giraffe statues raise cash. St Richard's Hospice has thanked everyone involved in its Worcester Stands Tall project after smashing its fundraising target by almost £100,000 through the sale of 31 giraffe statues. The hospice on Wildwood Drive, Worcester, aimed to raise a conservative £120,000, but saw the giraffe's combined total reach more than £210,000 during an incredible auction on Thursday night. Sarah Matthews, project manager, said it has been the biggest scheme St Richard's has ever held, with a follow-up potentially on the table. If we did it, It would be 2020, but we will have to wait and see, she said. Earlier this month, the Worcester Stands tall giraffes were rounded up after more than 10 weeks on display across the city, with 3,000 people then attending a farewell event at the cathedral. 
Thousands had flocked from far and wide to follow the trail before the uniquely decorated eight-foot artworks were sent to auction at DRP Group in Hartlebury. The event was labelled a towering success by the hospice's fundraising director, Tricia Cavell, with the two most profitable statues being Giraffe Graffiti and Girafficom, both taking £15,000 each. While the smallest fee paid was still an impressive £4,500, the auction was hosted by Free Radio's Tom Newitt and Hursty and featured Floggit and Bargain Hunt auctioneer Philip Serrell. Miss Cavell said the team were thrilled to raise the money for the Build 2020 appeal. The fund raised will make a huge difference to our project to expand and redevelop the hospice ultimately allowing us to extend our care to more patients and families, she said. Alongside the 30 adult giraffe statues, which were decorated by artists, 27 smaller cars were also on display in the city, with one, Lily the Pink, auctioned off too. Most of the smaller giraffes were decorated by schools and community groups and have now returned home to them as a legacy to the project. Dave Gresner, a businessman from Hanbury, near Droitwich, bought the Snowdrop sculpture for £8,000 to be gifted back to the hospice where his wife Sue is a resident. The statue is painted by artist Katie Hodgetts, whose granddad was cared for at St Richard's before his death in 2016. The hospice had heard earlier the Save Our Snowdrop campaign to buy the giraffe raised £1,700. Mr Grezer, whose wife Sue is being cared for in the hospice inpatient unit, said the couple wanted to support St Richard's as a way of thanking them for all they have done. We have first-hand experience of hospice care since we were introduced over two years ago, he said. Everybody involved is caring and full of love. Mr Grezer praised the hospice for the support they have given him and the couple's son, Josh, during Sue's illness. Snowdrop will have company at the hospice as another giraffe sculpture, Touch the Wishing Star, designed by by Toya Wilcox, was also donated to the hospice by its winning bidder. John Sheen bought the sculpture in memory of his daughter, Sarah Truman, who was cared for by St Richard's before she died in August, aged 31. Mr Sheen said, I thought it was appropriate to bid for Wishing on a Star as hopefully she is up there looking at us. He added, I hope the children will go and see the giraffe if their grandparents or parents are ill and they can wish on that star. It's also in memory of my daughter and will always be there. The Hospice's Build 2020 Appeal aims to raise the funds needed to build a bigger hospice, enabling more patients and loved ones to be cared for in the future. The total cost of the project is £5.3 million. To find out more about St Richard's Hospice and to show support for its Build 2020 appeal, visit strichards.org.uk.
Thank you, Pam. Our next headline is Drunk Dad Had Kitchen Knife on Revenge Mission. A drunken dad armed himself with a knife to exact revenge for a beating after a row with his neighbour about noise. Matthew Howell was beaten up after he remonstrated with his neighbours about noise coming from the flat below his in Barbourne, Worcester. Worcester Crown Court heard he suffered a chipped tooth and other injuries to his face, including a black eye, although claims the bruises corresponded to a boot mark were not supported by a scenes of crime officer. After he was injured, the 26-year-old returned to his flat covered in blood and laid out an assortment of blades on his bed, including a samurai sword with a 26-inch blade. The former Worcester racecourse and care home worker armed himself with a serrated kitchen knife before heading downstairs to confront the men who had beaten him up. There he was seen banging on the door and shouting, let me in, for some minutes. Howell was also heard to shout, I'm going to rip you to pieces. When the police arrived at around 1am, he refused to drop the kitchen knife, which he held behind his back. He had to be subdued with PAVA spray, a chemical spray used to incapacitate. Howell of Raglan Street was jailed for eight months after an earlier admitting possession of a bladed article in a public place. Judge Nicholas Cartwright said, I'm confident in saying the facts of this case very, correspond very closely with the facts of many past offences of murder and or of manslaughter or wounding resulting in life-changing or life-threatening injuries. Just this sort of incident and circumstances provide the backdrop to many a very, very serious offence of violence or homicide. That is why the possession of knives is always regarded as so very serious. Nicholas Berry, prosecuting, said police found Howell kneeling in front of the door with a serrated kitchen knife in his hand. Mr Berry said there had been an earlier fracas inside the flats and that Howell had come off worse. When officers searched Howell's room, they found another kitchen knife and a samurai sword laid out on his bed. During the course of the disturbance in the later stages, he had returned to the property covered in blood and placed three knives on the bed, selecting another one before returning back downstairs. Howell was described by Mr Berry as extremely drunk. He had been drinking all afternoon before he was returning to his flat at around midnight. Howell told the court that he now bore the people who had injured him no ill will. He had lived at the flat owned by his mother for 15 years. Judith, Kearn Judith Kenny, defending, said her client had some mental health issues and supplied photographs of his injuries which she described as considerable. Miss Kenny said it was her belief her client had been left concussed before the incident on June 9th. She said he is very well aware of the view about anything to do with knives. The court also heard that he has previous convictions for assaulting a police officer and resisting a constable in September 2012. Judge Cartwright said it was a serious aggravating feature that Howell was very intoxicated as there was a higher risk that the knife could have been used. He said the blade, the blade he had was serrated, tapered, of considerable length and, quote, capable of inflicting very serious, if not fatal, injuries. The judge told Howell that plainly you had been beaten up, but he said he made the choice to introduce the knife to the argument himself. Judge Cartwright added, there was nothing spontaneous about it, it was planned. You were plainly determined because when police turned up and, you, and told you to surrender the item, you didn't and had to be subdued with a spray. The judge said that while he was sympathetic to Howell's family situation, it could not provide any justification for his behaviour. 
Right, the next headline is Pretty Vacant. And the subheadline is number of empty shops in city centre increases by almost a quarter in a year. The photographs are of two rather desolate-looking shop fronts of empty shops. The number of empty shops in the city centre has increased by almost a quarter in the last year, a new report has found. A report released by Worcester City Council in July found 77 vacant units in the city centre compared to 62 a year earlier, a rise of 24%. The latest survey figure for September showed a slight drop in the number of empty shops to 72. Of the city centre's 77 empty shops, more than half lay empty for at least a year. The Retail Monitor report, which sets out what shop space the city has lost and gained in the last year and compares it with council retail targets, showed Worcester has a vacancy rate for shops higher than the national average of between 11 and 13%. However, Phoebe Dawson, manager of Worcester Business Improvement District, was optimistic about the city's retail trade. She said, Worcester monitors ground floor vacancies on a quarterly basis and I'm delighted to report that our most recent count suggests businesses are still keen to invest in Worcester's city centre, one of the many reasons we've been shortlisted for the coveted title of Great British High Street of the Year. Contrary to national trends, statistics show that our high street is packed with shoppers and we've fewer empty premises than this time last year. This buoyancy is attracting even more independent traders to the city and the year ahead should be one of our most successful yet. I hope everyone will get behind our efforts to support local business and vote for us to be crowned Great British High Street of the Year. The data, taken from April 2017 to March this year, showed 7% of shops in the whole of the city have remained empty for more than a year. Of the 128 empty shops in the city, just over half have been empty for more than a year. The report shed some light on retail trends in Worcester, pointing to the rise of nail bars, tattoo shops and tanning salons opening, as well as the rise of smaller chain convenience stores by Tesco, Sainsbury's and Co-op. The number of charity shops in the city, 28 in total, 14 of which are spread across the city centre, also gets a mention. The new Retail Monitor report, the first to be released since 2004, is an important document for tracking the progress of developments proposed in the South Worcestershire Development Plan and whether changes in retail space affect future plans. Worcester City Council said it does not have direct responsibility for filling empty shops, but instead looks for initiatives which benefit the wider city centre economy and encourages new businesses to start up and existing businesses to grow. In the city centre, Mr Sims' Oldie Sweet Shop in High Street, Colourful Pots in Copenhagen Street and Zero Waste off the Shambles all received grants from the City Council this year. A spokesman for the City Council said retail units can be vacant for a number of reasons. The current level of retail voids is not particularly unusual. In fact, it's been higher in the recent past. The September Retail Monitor, which gives the most recent quarterly count for city centre vacancies, recorded a reduction in the number of vacancies, down from 77 to 72. 
We've also been working closely with trustees to increase occupancy of the hot market. Over the last 12 months, the number of empty units there has dropped from 13 to 4. Cycling ban welcomed. We need to stop the increasing number of dangerous and selfish cyclists. A ban on cycling on the city centre, sorry, a ban on cycling on the city centre's pedestrianised streets has been welcomed by the county's councillor for highways. Councillor Alan Amos said he was delighted a ban on cycling through Worcester city centre streets was going to be better enforced by police and was happy to see a clear plan to deal with what he called wretched cyclists. The outspoken councillor, who is Cabinet Member for Highways at the County Council, also called the city cyclists dangerous and selfish and blasted delivery riders as idiots. Councillor Amos said, This is an issue about the safety of the public, so we need to stop the increasing number of dangerous and selfish cyclists, including delivery idiots speeding through the streets full of pedestrians. If we don't stop them, then it is only a matter of time before somebody is going to get injured or even killed, as happened in Hereford recently. The police will be actively supported by City Council's civil enforcement officers who will be sharing intelligence with them so that repeat offenders can be prosecuted with the courts being asked to impose the maximum penalty given the seriousness of this offence. I am delighted we now have a clear and coordinated plan of action to deal with these wretched people. They just need to get off their bikes and walk them through, just like everybody else is walking in a pedestrianised zone. Cyclists and pedestrians do not safely mix, and pedestrians have every right to be able to go about their business without constant fear of being knocked over or injured. The pedestrianised area of the city centre, namely High Street, Broad Street, The Shambles, Angel Street, Pump Street, Millcheapen Street and Church Street, as well as parts of Friar Street, Copenhagen Street and the Corn Market, would now be off-limits for the city cyclists between 10.30am and 4.30pm every day. Changes to signs around the city centre, which already outlined to motorists that vehicles are banned, would inform cyclists that the ban also extends to them. The City Council says it would have little involvement in enforcing the ban because cycling through a pedestrianised area of the city on a bicycle would become a criminal issue. The council's civil enforcement officers, who issue fines for littering and dog fouling, as well as parking tickets, would only instruct offending cyclists to get off their bikes. Without sufficient power, further action would be the responsibility of the police. Nobody from West Mercia Police was available to comment when contacted by the Worcester News. Talks to end the daytime cycling ban through the city centre's busiest streets began in February, a move Councillor Amos called utter madness. 
and he blasted the council for not putting enough effort into enforcing the ban. Removing the ban would have put Worcester in line with many town and city centres across the country, including Birmingham, Hereford, Cheltenham and Stratford-upon-Avon. At the time, the city council admitted the ban was unenforceable and said no evidence had been put forward to say cyclists had caused any safety issues. And finally, today's headline is Crime Hit Night Spot Facing Closure. A city nightclub is facing closure after police called for a review of its licence agreement due to concerns about continued crime and disorder. Alexander Fell, owner of Alexander's in New Street, said he was dismayed to hear West Mercia Police had made a formal application to the City Council for a review. A Worcester City Council notice, placed outside the popular night spot, says the constabulary has made the application as a result of continued disorder at the venue. The police believe the licence holder is failing to adequately promote licensing objectives in relation to prevention of crime and disorder, public safety and protection of children from harm under the Licensing Act of 2003. Sergeant Paul Smith said, We have made a formal application to regulatory services to have Alexander's premises licence reviewed, as there have been various incidents. It is the responsibility of the licence holder to uphold lawful behaviour and observe the regulations within their licensed premises. Mr Fell said, following the police's support for his application earlier this year to extend trading hours, he is really concerned about the constabulary's latest move. Describing the venue as an independent local family-owned business, he accused the police's submission of containing inaccuracies. We have successfully worked with West Mercia Police in a spirit of open partnership for four years in establishing a premium late-night venue for the city of Worcester, he said. The businessman, who also owns the neighbouring brick room, believes the application contains, in our opinion, inaccuracies which create a very unfair impression. He said he would continue to cooperate with police to resolve matters and reassured customers that the bar would continue as normal. Over the summer, police released a CCTV image of three men believed to have been in the club on June 24th before two men were kicked and punched to the floor. Later in the summer, several of the club's front windows were smashed. There were also reports of a fight outside the club in the early hours of January 27th, believed to have involved a group who had been asked to leave the venue. At the time, Mr Fell said... We had a prearranged party which was high-spirited and asked to leave the venue. They did this with no incident occurring. Outside, we worked alongside a small number of police to make sure everyone dispersed safely and to our knowledge there were no injuries and no arrests made. A spokesman for the City Council said Worcestershire Regulatory Services has started the process for reviewing Alexander's licence. A 28-day consultation period is running until November the 9th, during which anyone with an interest can make representations to WRS Inquiries, or one word, at WorcesterRegServices.gov.uk. At the end of the consultation period, all representations will be assessed and a report will then be submitted to the licensing subcommittee. The subcommittee will then review the licence within a further 20 working days. Well, those are the headlines. We're now going to move to our selection of other news stories, and we're going to start with Catherine. 
Thank you, Phil. Well, my first story is um, about the new art house in the city, um, which is, of course, just been opened. The university's newly opened multi-million pound art house offers an open and flexible space, not just for students, but also the city itself. The Castle Street facility is currently housing the World Illustration Awards 2018 and Migrations exhibitions, with university classes expected to start there in February. The principle behind it was to create an open and flexible space that could be used for the arts in keeping with the way the university develops things, said David Broster, head of the university's School of Arts. It's very much working with the community and kids, as well as the students that will be using it and the professional exhibitions within there. Situated in what was originally an Austin Motors car showroom in the 1930s, the art house breathes new life into the Grade Two listed building. The wide open space is divided between fine art and illustrations, but Mr Broster said it's a space for particular kinds of work rather than belonging to a course or a school, the same principle as the arena. We'll be using partition walls that will move, he continued. The key was not to create fixed spaces that you're stuck with. Mark Evans, assistant director of estates, explained to make up for the lack of fixed walls, an acoustic panel lines the roof, while completely new electric and heating systems have also been installed, along with endless data and power points. Desdemona McCannon principal lecturer in illustration, said, there's an opportunity here to have a proper studio culture which is just totally vanishing from the sector. Tobias Hickey, course leader for illustration, said, it's interesting, the university built the hive just as all the libraries around the country were shutting down. Now they've invested £4 million in an arts facility as arts are being written out of curriculums. It's counterculture making a stand for the things that are important. Thank you, Catherine. Council criticised in Ofsted report. Ofsted was criticised Worcestershire County Council for not doing enough to get students at a short-stay school back into mainstream education. Inspector Deb Jenkins said Newbridge short-stay school in Midland Road, Worcester, which takes students excluded from other schools, has no local authority systems in place to promote pupils returning to mainstream schools. The report said work to ensure pupils receive the right support is hampered, stating that leaders provided compelling evidence that transition information from the local authority for newly referred pupils is almost always sparse or missing altogether. Head teacher James Laidler said, The local authorities should be driving the system to make sure young people get a second chance. But the Austin report says that system does not appear to be in place. An awful lot of young people are out of education at the moment. They are young people who do want to return to mainstream education, but they find it hard to secure a place. The inspector said that the school, which is currently rated inadequate, is taking effective action towards the removal of special measures. 
The report read, the quality of teaching and learning has improved since the last inspection because of the helpful support and guidance staff have received from senior and middle leaders. Inspectors saw positive working relationships between staff and pupils, leading to pupils being better engaged in their learning. In all year groups, pupils are making better progress. However, the report did point out that students are kept waiting for the doors to be unlocked at 9am, meaning they wait outside, standing on the street, some of them smoking, and that a few peoples who arrive in taxis abscond from school. The school was told to take immediate and effective action to improve the attendance of all students and significantly reduce the proportion of pupils who do not receive full-time education. Speaking on the report, Mr Laidler said, It is hugely positive. We are really pleased the inspectors recognised we are building positive relationships with the children. They all, have come to, they all have come to us with major setbacks in their education, but we are trying to help them put that behind them. The inspection visit took place on September the 25th and 26th. The County Council failed to comment before the Worcester News deadline. Right, my next story is Stop Yellow Lines Plan. A resident has started a petition over resurrected plans to put single yellow lines on a city road. Jo Marter of Bromyard Road, Worcester, says she is not satisfied that the public has been properly consulted on the proposal for her street. The Reverend John Musselwhite previously spoke out in opposition to the lines, arguing that they would prevent some worshippers from attending Bromyard Road Methodist Church. The congestion-busting measure was put on hold after the outcry, although the council has now resumed the plans. Mrs Marta said, After my standard 10-hour day away from home, I already struggle to find a parking space, particularly when local car showroom employees park here. The removal of these spaces will make life harder, more dangerous and more stressful for me as a hard-working parent. It will do the same for many other neighbours who will be affected. The adjacent streets to Bromyard Road will be affected by overspill. Pushing more cars into pavement parking on Blakefield Walk will also increase the danger when walking our little boy to school. We already find ourselves walking in the road to a, in order to navigate around cars. Having spoken to a lot of mums like myself who walk their kids to school, there's a concern that it's ill-considered. She now plans to work with neighbours on a paper and online petition. The closing date for comments to the council proposal is October the 25th. The county council spokesman said, we have started to reconsult on this matter and we welcome feedback. Right, well this story I think will please a lot of people and in fact I seem to remember reading um, a story about this a few months ago for, for Talking Newspaper. Uh, the headline is £30,000 to tackle gulls. A fund to tackle gulls in the city looks set to be doubled to £30,000 if councillors approve plans. Worcester City Council's Environment Committee has been asked to increase the annual kitty to pay for a dedicated member of staff to flesh out new initiatives and ensure it's doing all it can to deter gulls. The budget to tackle the problems posed by the city's gulls was up to £15,000 last year. 
The council currently spends around £5,500 a year on tricking gulls by substituting real eggs for rubber dummies in a bid to limit the number of hatchlings. If the call for an increased budget is approved at a meeting on Tuesday, October the 23rd, the City Council would expand the areas it replaces eggs. Egg replacement, which councillors have long said was the easiest and best way to minimise the problem, also minimises the amount of food girls, food girls need to scavenge for and prevents the birds from becoming aggressive when protecting chicks. Earlier this year, the City Council trialled the use of a drone in spotting hard-to-find nests and the councillors said it would continue using the drones as well as cherry pickers to locate well-hidden nests. As well as replacing eggs, the City Council has trialled gull-proof bins at ten locations throughout the city centre. The City Council has yet to find a suitable site to trial a red roof scheme which it is said would deter gulls from nesting. In collaboration with Worcester Bid and Worcestershire Regulatory Services, the City Council advises businesses, particularly those with outdoor seating areas, on what to do to limit the problem. With more money, the Council said it could extend the advice to businesses to St John's, Blackpool and Bedwardine. The next headline, Shedding Light on Halloween's Past. About 2,000 years ago in Asia... Beautifully crafted paper lanterns began to feature in spiritual and seasonal celebrations. These beautiful and delicate painted shapes were not only intended to illuminate, but to use light to decorate the celebrator festival. Sky lanterns were an evolution of the paper lantern and allowed the energy of the flame to float the lantern high into the air. The practice was adopted by the West and paper lanterns have been used throughout Europe and North and South America in religious and seasonal festivals such as Christmas. In 7th century Europe, Pope Boniface IV established All Martyrs Day to one of the Christian martyrs. In the 8th century, Pope Gregory III moved the celebration to November the 1st and encouraged the celebration of all saints and martyrs. All Saints, or All Hallows, gave rise to All Hallows' Eve, the evening before a religious holiday, which eventually became simplified to Halloween. The modern Halloween that we celebrate today is very much inspired by the North American festivities, including the carving of pumpkins into jack-o'-lanterns, as well as trick or treat, and dressing up as spooks and monsters. The historic papier-mâché lantern pictured is culmination of nearly 2,000 years of history, a Christian holiday, an Asian decoration and a Western twist. It hangs in the Toys and Dolls Gallery at the Hartlebury Castle. There are Halloween celebrations at all museums, Worcestershire venues, from the spooky ghost tours at the Commandery to autumn-themed craft activities and a Halloween pumpkin parade at Hartlebury Castle. For more events information, go to museumsworcestershire.org.uk. Thank you. Spooky. Thank you. Year 6 obesity rate hits a record high. 
Now, just in case, year six is the last year of primary school before they go into year seven in secondary school. So now we know. Levels of severe obesity among year six children have hit a record high nationally, new figures reveal. In Worcestershire, 3.5% of year six children are severely obese, according to the figures published by NHS Digital. The figure is for the 2017-2018 school year and is below the national average, with 4.2% of 10- and 11-year-olds in England defined as severely obese. But, worryingly, the latest data from the National Child Measurement Programme, overseen by Public Health England, shows that there has been an increase on the national average of 3.2% when the data was first collected in 2006 to 2007. Childhood obesity rates in the most deprived areas are more than double that of those in the least deprived areas. With the prevalence of severe obesity among year six pupils increasing by more than a third nationally, the government has vowed to tackle childhood obesity, with the Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health saying it was totally unacceptable. The government has introduced a series of measures, including a tax on sugary soft drinks, to tackle the problem, and recently unveiled the second chapter of its childhood obesity strategy. Dr Alison Tedston, chief nutritionist at PHE, said these continuing high rates of childhood obesity, combined with widening health inequalities, highlight why government is taking bold steps to tackle this crisis. The threat to our children's health has been decades in the making. We are moving in the right direction, but reversing it will not happen overnight. Dr Max Davey, Officer for Health Promotion, said, The government has already shown it is serious about tackling childhood obesity. I am reassured that these stats will begin moving in the right direction. However, as the figures have shown today, 20% of children are already obese by the time they leave primary school, and this is totally unacceptable. Right. The next story is about a teacher backing Billy. A teacher had her head shaved to raise money for a pupil who's travelling to Germany for cancer treatment. The money raised will help the family of 16-year-old Billy White to stay with him in Germany, where he will undergo proton beam therapy. Helen Davis, the head of music at Dyson Perrin's Church of England Academy and Billy White's form tutor, underwent the shave on Wednesday. Billy, who suffers a rare form of cancer called chondroblastic osteosarcoma, will receive NHS funding for the treatment. Speaking about Wednesday's fundraising event, Billy said, she's decided to shave her head because I had to lose my hair during chemotherapy. It's really amazing to have her and lots of other people making events and donating money. It's to raise an extra bit of money to help me on my way in Germany. The money will go towards things such as a car over there, expenses for the rest of my family to come, and additional costs. He added that the money will also help pay for tutors so he can keep up with his schoolwork. Billy currently has a tumour by his sinuses and described his health as not brilliant. The pupil, who lives in Half Key Road, Malvern, said, It's important to reduce it in size so it doesn't grow any bigger. If it grows bigger, it could blind me. Billy was due to leave for Germany with his family on Sunday, with treatment due to start on Tuesday. The treatment will last for two months, and Billy, who one day wants to be a sound engineer, hopes to be home for Christmas. 
Miss Davis, aged 38, said, Billy is an incredible young man who's such zest for life. He's a truly lovely lad who would do anything for anyone and he's been an invaluable member of my technical team at school for many events. I knew I had to do something dramatic in order to raise as much money as I could to support Billy with his ongoing medical treatment. People have said I'm brave to shave my head, but for all those who are undergoing treatment for cancer, it is not a choice for them, but a traumatic part of a reality that they have to come to terms with, alongside the very real implications of a cancer diagnosis. I've not done something brave. I've merely encouraged people to donate money by giving them an incentive. The event at Malvern Vale Community Centre raised £340 for Billy and his family. If you'd like to contribute, then go to the Just Giving page on www.justgiving.com forward slash crowdfunding forward slash backbilly. Golden Wedding Delight for Sisters Two sisters who tied the knot in a joint ceremony 50 years ago are celebrating their golden wedding today. Doreen Sampson, age 70, and Jackie Leisman, age 68, both knee Bradley, married Ian Sampson, known as Sam, and Clive Leisman at St John's Church, Storage, on October 12, 1968. Jackie's Chihuahua Tinker donned a white satin coat with red buttons for the occasion. The reception served only champagne and the blushing brides forgot their bouquets until later in the day. The couples went on honeymoon together in Paris. They go shopping together and have lived next door to each other for most of their lives, seeing each other every day. When they first married, they lived in Malvern, two miles apart. Then they moved to Bosbury Road in Cradley. In 1981, they both moved to West Malvern Road, where they lived until January this year, when Jackie and Clive moved to Grit Lane, Malvern. Doreen said, We are always with each other, every day. We are very close. You cannot get anyone closer than me and my sister. We always get on. We never have any problems. Sometimes we have differences of opinion, like everyone does. We all four get along very well together. We always go out to different places together. We are always there for each other, if we are in trouble or upset. We were in close with our parents too. Both of us used to look after my mum, Olive, and Dad. We would go and see them every day. We would always do it together. She added, My father, Albert Bradley, built our houses next door to each other in West Malvern Road. We always borrow things from each other, an egg or a cup of sugar. We have always been very close. Dory met Sam, now aged 71, at the Cellars Coffee Bar in Worcester. He was a toolmaker and she worked at her mother's typing agency alongside her sister Doreen. When asked the secret to a happy marriage, Doreen said, We just get on. We have just lived our lives. We haven't done anything special. Jackie met Clive, now aged 75, when she moved to Malvern. He was a Ministry of Aviation chauffeur. Speaking on the joint wedding, Jackie said, I don't know really how it came about. My sister hoped to get my mum and dad's wedding anniversary as the date. 
Speaking about her special bond with Doreen, Jackie said, We have had a good life. We are really lucky to have what we have. When asked the secret to our happy marriage, Jackie said, We have spent a lot of time laughing and joking, just getting on with our lives. The couples will be joined by their sister Roberta, known as Bobby, and family for a celebratory meal out at the retreat Norton, Worcester. The Sampsons have three children and four grandchildren, and the Lysmans have two children and three grandchildren. This is the Dave Bradley column from Saturday's paper. Internet never fails to amaze me. What's the greatest invention ever, Dave asks. Penicillin? The internal combustion engine? The internet. The internet continues to amaze me, speaking as someone who spent about 50 years of my life never using it, mainly because it wasn't there. My words will come zooming in via the internet, and last Sunday the internet came to my rescue. Durness is right in top left-hand corner of Scotland, and there we were, perched on a cliff-top in a motorhome, in 40-mile-an-hour winds and pouring with rain. But, due to the mighty net, I was able to watch the Warriors hammer Bristol at six ways, saw every minute of it, and apart from the first five minutes, thoroughly enjoyed it. We love the west coast and the north of Scotland, but to be honest, the high winds and rain have driven us further south this week, but to another of our favourite parts of the country, the coast of Northumbria. We have walked on Bamburgh Beach on each of the last three days. I'm so jealous, incidentally. It's one of my favourite walks. And Pam too. Again, very windy, but love just wandering along with the dogs, one of whom, Louis, has not been on his best behaviour. He decided to take himself down some rabbit holes on the cliffs, and it took a while to get the little devil back out. Devil was my word, incidentally. Once again, I am saddened by the passing of a good man, Derek Dusty Russell, a legend in local cricket. A very good player in his day, he helped set up the old Worcestershire Cricket Association and a whole host of young players were indebted to the work and coaching Derek did, many of them going on to play county and indeed test cricket. There are lots of tributes to him on social media and he will be missed. Thoughts are with his family and close friends. Right, um, this is a short news item about the storm, Storm Callum, that uh, gave us all a very wet and windy weekend, just just gone. Uh, Storm Callum caused disruption as the city continued to be battered by heavy downpours throughout the weekend. The wet weather brought localised flooding to roads in Worcester, with motorists forced to drive through water covering Hilton Road, and there was also flash flooding in parts of Malvern Road. Yesterday, that must be the Sunday, a tree fell near Diglis Basin, blocking Diglis Road for several hours. Another tree also fell in Pitchcroft Lane. On Friday, motorists were being advised to avoid the A38 at Fernhill Heath after a tree fell onto the road. In Upton, the A4104 had to be closed due to a dangerous tree, which Worcestershire County Council's Highways Department said it was unable to cut down because of high winds. Drivers were diverted via Welland and Hanley Swan. Elsewhere, in Pendock, the B4208 was partially blocked near to the motorway bridge due to another fallen tree. The bad weather that weekend was the tail end of Storm Callum. Victory for free speech for uni. A year after a dangerous attack on academic freedom by a government whip, 
which was exposed by the Vice-Chancellor at the University of Worcester, the Information Commissioner has delivered a significant victory for free speech. The Commissioner has found in favour of the University in refusing to release all emails within the account of the Vice-Chancellor or anyone who provides him with an administrative support which contain the word Brexit. In her judgment, the Commissioner stated, if the University is required to put this information into the public domain, the Commissioner agrees that those views would be likely to be much more cautious and risk-averse in the future, and those concerned would be inhibited from providing a free and frank exchange of views for the purposes of deliberation. The Freedom of Information request was one of several received by the University following the controversy surrounding a letter sent to all University Vice-Chancellors from Chris Heaton Harris MP, which requested a list of all academics who were teaching on the subject of Brexit, together with copies of the syllabus and links to the course. Mr Heaton Harris MP, who is currently a junior minister in the Brexit department, was a senior government whip when he sent the letter in October 2017. In response, Professor Green refused to provide the information. He argued that Mr Heaton Harris' approach was challenging to the concept of freedom of speech and academic freedom, which is the cornerstone of the UK's university education system. The controversy which was reported around the world led to several further attempts to obtain the information under the Freedom of Information Act. Vice-Chancellor Professor David Green said, I am delighted that the Information Commissioner has found that the University has behaved properly and lawfully in this matter. And now the Patient's View column written by Paul Crawford and his headline is Actions to Ease Those SAD Symptoms and SAD is of course Seasonal Affective Disorder. In a couple of weeks, he writes, the clock will soon go back indicating that winter will soon be here and many of us will start to feel the onset of the winter blues. Feeling low because of the grey gloomy days is quite normal but the shorter days of winter may also trigger a more severe depressive illness. Sunny summers keep us happy and energetic whilst during the cold miserable weather we often feel lethargic with a tendency to eat and sleep more. Figures indicate that around 17% of Brits experience winter blues. Around 7% of the population suffer from a more serious form of winter depression called seasonal affective disorder. As with all forms of depression, the main symptoms include a low mood and a loss of pleasure or interest in normal everyday activities. Other depressive symptoms can include feeling irritable, tearful, indecisive, stressful and can give rise to feelings of despair and self-esteem. For many people, SAD can be difficult because it can have a significant effect on their day-to-day life with feelings of lethargy and the need to sleep. To help improve your symptoms of SAD, a number of lifestyle changes can help. These include getting as much sunlight as possible and taking a brief lunchtime walk outside, which will also help towards a regular exercise program. A healthy, balanced diet and avoiding stress where possible can also help. Also try to make your home as light and airy as possible. The the most important action of all is to talk to your family about SAD 
so that they can understand why your mood changes during the winter. If symptoms persist, SAD can usually be effectively treated using various treatments, including cognitive behavioural therapy, antidepressants and light therapy. And depending on the nature and severity of your symptoms, your GP will recommend the most suitable option for you. Keep calm and happy. <laughs> We're moving on to sport now. And the first story for sport is about the... Um, Worcester City football ground and the very chequered history it's had over the last few years. Uh, the headline is Compelling Business Case Needed, Mitchell. Councillor Chris Mitchell maintains Purdiswell is not the right place for Worcester City's stadium, but insists any push for a land transfer will get a fair hearing. Worcester City Council's planning chair held the casting vote when the club's supporters' trust got denied permission for a 4,400-capacity ground in July 2017, some three years after applying. It led to City's board opting to pursue a new project at Parsonage Way that was deemed unfeasible by council officers in July 2018. Then-Chairman Anthony Hampson stood down in the wake of that decision, with four new directors, all with links to the Supporters' Trust, taking up posts on the board. The Trust's appeal to the Planning Inspectorate over Purdiswell was then upheld, pushing the proposed site firmly back on the agenda, with in-principle support from Labour Councillor Adrian Gregson. It led to Mitchell's initial call being labelled ideological by city fans, with Gregson suggesting there is a question mark now over whether the chair of planning should continue. Gregson claims he is much closer to agreeing with the deal over the use of the council-owned land at Purdiswell, quote, than my political opponents are, because, again, quote, green and conservative politicians in that area are opposed to the club being there. But Mitchell remains adamant his reasons for rejection were based on planning considerations only and his thinking has not changed. He argued the council had gone out of its way and cited the passing of a planning application for Nunnery Way that ended up not coming to fruition. My view is the club needs to develop a compelling business case that convinces the council of their ability to build a stadium, regardless of where it is, said Mitchell. I am still reluctant over the loss of green space in the Birdiswell area. I think we don't have enough of it around the city, and it would take a compelling business case to convince me otherwise. I think we have looked at ten different sites with the club, all of which they said would not work. It depends on the size of stadium they want. In truth, I don't think it is my job or that of the council to find a location for the club. I don't know the full data detail of what they want to achieve, but if they come up with some ideas, we can help them. To date, I have seen no evidence that the football club has the financial viability to build and, more importantly, sustain itself at a new stadium, wherever that may be. I do not want to see a stadium built in the city that is then abandoned because the club is not sustainable. In a meeting over the Nunnery Way application, the chairman, Mr Hampson, said in an answer to one of my questions that the club was financially viable and had the money to build the stadium. Having been awarded the application then failed to build, their track record is not good in my view. 
I'm not against Worcester City Football Club per se, but believe Purdeswell is not the right place. <clears throat> this is no longer a planning issue. Now the finances, community aspects and the kind of things not reviewed at planning come into it. I'm a businessman. If someone comes forward with a plan that's workable, then I will give it a fair hearing. Mitchell added he did not, quote, believe the council should be renting, selling or otherwise providing council facilities below the market value. Asked whether that stance could change under a community ownership model, Mitchell replied, I would be very willing to look at it and see what evidence there would be of that benefiting the local community. That might give it a different view, but I don't know the details of that and can't comment until I do. Muddy success for young Worcester cyclist. Worcester Simon Willey conquered the muddy conditions to clinch the men's fifth round of the West Midlands Cyclocross League at Dudley's Bagridge Country Park. Wet weather created a slippery, muddy course, which included wooded, hilly grass sections that tested the rider's technical abilities. Halzo in A and CC rider Willie, who finished third in the previous round, was locked in a battle throughout the senior race with fellow junior rider Daniel Barnes, Litchfield City CC. Toby Barnes, who has won three of the opening four rounds, was forced to miss the race after suffering concussion on a training ride. His younger brother looked to bring the victory back to Lichfield and opened a gap on Willie in the opening exchanges as his rival suffered an early puncture. But last season's national under-16 cyclocross champion worked his way back up to that leader halfway throughout the race. As they approached the finish, Daniel Barnes tangled with the course tape and despite riding back up to his rival Willie, timed his sprint to perfection and took victory. After my puncture, I was a bit worried that I wouldn't get back to the front as I didn't feel that good, said Willie. One of the off-camber courses coming into the finish, I took a different line to the to Dan, which was faster, and he tangled with the tape, so lost time. I attacked, but he got back up to me. On the last corner, I didn't want him to dive-bomb me, so took it tight, but he took a wider and faster line, so coming out of it, we were head-to-head, -head, and I just won the sprint. Willie has been selected to ride for Great Britain in two international races in Belgium this weekend. Cricket now. Testimonial given to retired Chantry. Worcestershire have granted paceman Jack Chantry a testimonial for 2019 in recognition of his long and outstanding contribution to the club during the past decade. New chairman Fanos Hira said the county wanted to honour the achievements of Chantry, who was forced to hang up his spikes midway through last season because of a back injury. Shrewsbury-born Chantry, or it could be Shrewsbury-born Chantry, I suppose, 30, will always be held in affection by the Worcestershire supporters for his century and 10 wickets in the promotion-clinching county championship win over Surrey in 2014. But there was much more to his career than that outstanding performance, and his determination to make the most of his ability made him highly respected among coaches, players and fans. Fanos had indicated during his speech at the annual awards night that Worcestershire wanted to recognise players who made a sizeable contribution. He said, 
we as a club are very keen to recognise those players who have given great service to the club and Jack fits the bill perfectly. No one will ever forget his promotion ceiling individual performance when he rescued a lost looking cause. He came through the ranks and was one of the several players who graduated from Shrewsbury and over many years was a key member of the attack and also chipped in with some very useful late order runs. We are delighted to grant Jack this testimonial for the 2019 season. It's thoroughly deserved. Chantry, who is currently training to become an umpire, said, I'm absolutely thrilled to have been awarded this testimonial. I'm grateful to the club and to Fanos for granting it. I love Worcestershire and I've loved my time playing for the club. I've got great memories and next year I look forward to seeing the fans in what will be a celebration of my career. Chantry made his first class and list A debut for the county in 2009 and got his 2020 breakthrough the following year. With his achievements against Surrey in 2014, Chantry became the first player batting at number 9 or lower in a first-class cricket match to score 100 and take 10 wickets in the same game. He finished that campaign with 56 first-class wickets and the following year in Division 1 had a total of 67, an average of 21.73. Chantry scored a second first-class 100 in 2016 against Gloucestershire at Blackfinch New Road. Netball now, and here's a report about an international ace links up with Seven Stars. Seven Stars has snapped up Jamaica international defender Jodie Ann Ward. Currently competing against England in a tri-test series, Ward has been capped 14 times and helped her country to bronze at the 2018 Commonwealth Games. I'm looking forward to playing high-intensity netball and competitive netball in a professional environment on a weekly basis, said Ward. Some of the attributes that I think I can bring to the team are high work rate, a never-say-die attitude, willingness to go above and beyond, commitment to hard work and the team, and my great passion for the sport. Stars head coach Sam Bird said, I'm delighted to have Jodie Ann in our squad. Part of my role is to keep an eye on the international players around the world to see what potential we can bring to the club. She's a young, dynamic defender, quick across the ground with fabulous elevation. She's versatile, offering all three positions at the back and will be a great part of our top-class defence. Meanwhile, Iona, uh, captain Iona Darroch believes Stars have the potential to go all the way in the British Fast Five All-Stars Championship at London's Copper Box Arena today. Extra points for longer shots and double points up for grabs means the games can change very quickly. We definitely have the potential to go all the way. City to aid the elderly. Worcester City will extend the hand of friendship to fans of football league clubs as part of non-league day tomorrow. City has teamed up with Fans for Diversity, a group that promotes people from all backgrounds feeling safe and welcome at football matches. LGBT and Polish communities, along with voluntary groups at clubs such as West Bromwich Albion, Aston Villa and Birmingham City have been encouraged to sample the grassroots game with slashed gate prices all round for the FA Vars clash with Long Eaton United. Adult admission has been reduced to £6 with concessions entering for £4 and kids for a quid in operation for all under 16s. 
It's the first of many initiatives in the pipeline with Chairman Steve Good, revealing plans to run free travel for the elderly to City's home matches. The Exard Club plays at Bromsgrove with Good, engaging with Age UK and Worcester Wheels to reach out to those who have been unable to attend and newcomers while tackling social problems. We're looking at helping to reduce loneliness and isolation as well as tackling mental health issues for the men, said Good. It is something we have not done before and we would like to know how many people would like to take it up and come along. One of the things I keep bringing up is how we have lost touch with a lot of our elderly fans who can no longer get to games. Hopefully, we can make this a regular thing as long as we have people wanting to use the service. To register interest in the travel service, call the club on 01905 Right, let's celebrate some uh, wheelchair basketball, shall we? Wolves off to a winning league start, it says. Worcester Wolves Wheelchair Basketball Club got off to a flying start in the 2018-2019 season. They secured a 40 points to 19 win at Coventry Academy in National League Division 3 South West. New head coach Harry Smith, a sports coaching science graduate and the University of Worcester head coach last season, has also shadowed Great Britain men's boss Haj Bania to improve his coaching expertise. Both teams got off to a slow start scoring-wise, but Wolves displayed strong defence throughout. As the battle went on, Worcester's scoring power increased from the second quarter as they had a 20-9 to lead at half-time. In the second half, Wolves continued to dominate as the score was 32-13 at the end of the third quarter, allowing the away team to comfortably see out the game. Worcester's top scorer with 11 points was Frankie Jones, who has returned to the club following a seasonal stint at the now-defunct Premier League club TCAT Warriors. He said, Defensively, the boys put in an absolute effort as we kept Coventry to under 20 points. When our offence got flowing, we started moving the ball more, which is what strung things together, as we ended up putting quite a few points on the board. I'm pleased we got the win in the first game of the season, and I think we've got a good platform to build on from here. Wolves visit Swansea Storm on Sunday before a home double-header weekend against Gloucester Blazers on October 27 and Hampshire Harriers on October 28 at the St John's Campus Sports Centre. And back to cricket um, with a report about the end-of-season county awards. All-rounder Ed Barnard scooped four accolades when Worcestershire staged their 2018 awards evening at Blackfinch New Road. The 22-year-old lifted the Players' Player of the Year Award, the Dick Ligon Award, the Supporters' Association Player of the Year Award and the Fans' Forum Fielder of the Year Award. Barnard picked up a season's best 49 wickets in the Specsavers County Championship, in addition to scoring more than 500 runs, batting predominantly at number 7 or 8. He also earned his first England Lions call-up this summer. In addition, Barnard was a key member of the Rapids side in white ball cricket and produced some memorable moments in the field. He's won the Supporters' Association Player of the Year Award for the second year running. 
Vitality Blast hero Pat Brown also landed two awards, the T20 Player of the Year Award and the Worcestershire Cricket Society's Moment of the Season Award. Brown, who's 20 years old, finished as the Blast's leading wicket-taker with 31 victims and drew many plaudits for his variations of delivery. The Cricket Society Award was for his three wickets in an over to help seal the semi-final victory over Lancashire Lightning at Edgebaston. Opening batsman Jack Haynes won the Damien Dolivera Academy Player of the Year Award. Haynes scored his first second 11 century against Nottinghamshire and also earned his first England under-19 call-up. The Worcestershire Women's Rapids Player of the Year Award went to Chloe Hill, while the Players' Player Award was won by Issy Wong. This is a story on hockey, women in fine form. Worcester's women have started the campaign in style. Their second stop was to Sheer League Division 1 after winning 4-0 at Bourneville and the fourth a fourth in Division 3 following a 2-2 home draw with Starport 6. The first lost 5-3 to Starport's third in Midlands Feeder West as the players struggled with the wind and rain. Worcester's goals came from a well-executed reverse shot by Holly Smith, a Tash Walker penalty corner and a smart back-post deflection by Victoria Howell from Helen Barnes' bullet-like pass. The third secured a 3-0 win over visitors Bourneville, seconds in Division 2. In Midlands T1 Division 1, Worcester men's first lost 4-0 at North Stafford. The game started slowly, with the host getting an early break and converting their chance. Worcester had a disallowed effort and forced a goal-line clearance, but conceded a second just before half-time to a quick passing move. The visitors di- dictated the pace for much of the second half, but could not finish their opportunities, and Stafford netted twice more. Worcester's man of the match was Alistair Bullwell-Fox. And to finish our sports presentation, for now, here's a very heartwarming story headed Indian girls visit for football tour. Teenage girls from poverty-stricken areas of India are visiting Worcestershire as part of a groundbreaking football tour. Malvern College has hosted the tour by a team of teenage girls from deprived areas. The tour, named hashtag kick like a girl, is being organised by the Mumbai-based Oscar Foundation, which uses football to encourage girls and boys from poor communities to complete their education and set their sights on a a well-worthwhile career. Malvin pupils have been raising funds to provide a range of experiences for the girls during their visit, as well as taking them on a hard-fought football match. The highly drilled Indian side underlined their skill and pace with an entertaining 5-1 bless you, Catherine, victory over their Morphin College hosts and will be playing against several other well-known schools. Young girls from India's low-income communities face all kinds of discrimination, said Ashok Ratod, who set up the Oscar Foundation in 2010. As their parents are uneducated, they are often forced to leave school or are married off very young. Oscar wants to empower these girls and change their parents' mindsets. We want these girls to believe in themselves, to give them opportunities to show their talent and let them dream big. 
The game has proved a potent tool in selling education to poor families thanks to Oscar's one simple rule. No school, no football. One turning point was the highly successful Oscar Boys Tour to England in 2017, which gave the slum community the confidence to allow girls to travel. The boys returned very happy, said the tour's organiser, Lucinda Saubatz. They've become role models in their communities. These girls are the first members of their families to get a passport or to go abroad. Seven had never seen a swimming pool before, but they loved kayaking in the pool with Malvern College pupils, as well as trying hip-hop dancing, climbing and cycling for the first time. It's hugely exciting for them and they're learning so many new things, they're like flowers opening. In our community there are lots of problems, said the team's star striker, Atisha. When we first came outside, we were not allowed to wear shorts, but it's important for girls to play sports. I like football. It's my passion. My friends tell me you are playing very good at school. Oscar helps us in our education, and they're helping girls and boys to take part in sports. Every morning I have to do housework and work in the home, added her teammate, Priyanka. It's very hard for me, but I like to play sports. Right, we're now going to move on to the section in which we look at obituaries, and we'll start with Catherine. Yeah. Okay. Dave Clark passed away peacefully after a short illness, aged 82 years. The funeral service is at Worcester Crematorium on Friday, October the 19th at 10am. Family flowers only, please. Sally Knight sadly passed away October the 2nd, aged 70. A church service will be held at St Andrew's Church, Ombersley, on Wednesday, November the 7th, at 11.30am. Patricia Ann Weaver, known as Pat, passed away peacefully at home on Saturday, September the 22nd, 2018, aged 69 years. The funeral service took place today at Worcester, Worcester Crematorium at 10am. Diana Turner, née Alcott, passed away peacefully at Mowbray Nursing Home, Malden, on Tuesday, October the 9th, 2018. The funeral service will take place at Worcester Crematorium on Wednesday, October the 24th at 2.30pm. Roy Booth passed away on September the 23rd, age 91. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Tuesday, October the 23rd at 11.30am. Family flowers only, please, but donations if desired for the British Royal British Legion. Ken, Kenneth Foster, passed away peacefully at Springs Care Home, Malvern, on October the 11th, aged 87. Funeral service at Broadheath Church on Tuesday, October the 23rd, at 2.15pm. Family flowers only but donations, if desired, to the Alzheimer's Society. Rita Morgan, formerly Cooper, knee Bampfield. Rita passed away peacefully in hospital on October the 8th with her loving family by her side. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Tuesday, October the 23rd at 230 
family flowers only, please. Donations, if desired, to the Stroke Association. Kenneth William Edward Roberts passed away peacefully on Monday, October the 1st, aged 81. Funeral service at 11.30 on Tuesday, October the 25th at Worcester Crematorium. Family flowers only. Donations, if desired, to St Richard's Hospice. Thank you. Jacqueline Cope, known as Jackie, um, passed away on October the 8th. Funeral is at Worcester Crematorium on Thursday, October 25th. That's today, unfortunately, 2018, at 1pm. Alan Davis passed away at Cheltenham General Hospital, aged 82, on October the 4th. Funeral service will take place at Gloucester Crematorium on Monday, October 22nd at 2.30. Family flowers only, donations if desired for air ambulance. Maria Christina James passed away on October the 8th, 2018, aged 87. A requiem mass service at Our Lady Queen of Peace Roman Catholic Church on Thursday, October the 25th at 11am, followed by internment at St John's Cemetery. Flowers or donations for Our Lady Queen of Peace may be sent to Bedwardine Funeral Services, 30 Bromyard Road. Philip David Mould passed away peacefully on September the 29th, aged 86. The funeral service will take place at Worcester Crematorium on October the 25th at 10am. Family flowers only, please, but donations if desired to Macmillan Cancer Support. And it does say no black dress by request, please. Pamela Mary Penny passed away peacefully on September the 24th, aged 85. Funeral service at Hallow Church on October the 24th at 2pm. Family flowers only, donations to the Cats Protection League. Mary Rhodes, née Breakwell, died on October the 7th, 2018, aged 83. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Wednesday, October the 24th at 11.30. Flowers or donations to the Dogs Trust, care of Bedwardine Funeral Services. Robert Young passed away peacefully in hospital on the 29th of September, 2018, aged 67, uh, funeral service will take place at Worcester Crematorium on Friday, October 26th at 11.30. We're now going to look at what's on in the area and Catherine is going to talk us through that. Um, I'm just going to uh, outline uh, five uh, uh, events that are coming up in the next couple of weeks that you may be very interested in. The first one is a talk at the Huntingdon Hall on Wednesday the 31st of October. Uh, Benedict Allen, uh, he's called an ultimate explorer, will be talking about a solo expedition to Papua New Guinea that he has undertaken. Uh, it starts at 7.30, that's Wednesday the 31st of October, and tickets are £17.50, with concessions being charged £15.50. If you're interested, go to the box office manager at worcesterlive.co.uk or telephone 01905 611 Secondly, there's a quiz night on Thursday the 1st of November at the Guildhall in aid of St Richard's Hospice. Uh, 
It starts at 5.30pm, there'll be a hot buffet from 6pm and the quiz starts at 7pm with eight rounds. There'll be a prize for the winning team and a raffle. It seems to me to be rather pricey, it's £60 for a team of four, but on the other hand it's for a very good cause. So if you're interested in pulling together a team and attending on Thursday the 1st of November, then you should get in touch with R. Simons at strichards.org.uk or telephone 01905-763-973. Thirdly, some music on Friday the 2nd of November at St George's Church in Barbourne. There'll be a concert. The Clanglust String Orchestra will be playing. That starts at 7.30pm. Uh, tickets are £12 and £6 for students. That's Friday the 2nd of November at 730 Thank you, Catherine. Well, I hope you find something that will take, uh, take your fancy and imagination there. We're now going to move on to uh, uh, two or three short items. The, the thought for the week this week, selected by Kia Aldis, uh, is from Isaiah 28, verse 16. So this is what the Sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation, for one who trusts will never be dismayed. Birthday's got one birthday here, 24th of October, Anne McKeever. Um, best wishes, Anne, from all of us here. I hope you're able to, to have a very happy birthday. Sunset and sunrise. Uh, sunset tonight was 6.09. Missed it now, but trust me, it did happen. And sunrise tomorrow, or it could be lighting up time. I think it's sunrise. No, it's lighting up time. is 7.40. I'm looking at our treasured engineer, but he's just frowning at me. <laughs> That's what we have for you. So I'll get um, Catherine and Pam to say goodbye. It's goodbye from me. Goodbye. And it will be goodbye from me um, when I've sent you Pippa's regards. Pippa's unable to be with us this week, but hopefully she'll be back with us for the next time. And I'm just going to mention that I understand that Anthea Bell passed away today. Anthea Bell, with a guy called Derek Hockeridge, translated the Asterix stories into English, thus affording a lot of us a good deal of pleasure. Goodbye. <laughs>